When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's 2022. There are self-driving cars, plant burgers, and tourists in space. The least your phone could do is download entertainment in a flash. For that, you should get AT&T 5G. AT&T 5G is fast, reliable, and secure. Want to make sure your phone service keeps up with what you need from it? Get AT&T 5G. It's not complicated. 5G requires compatible plan and device. 5G may not be available in your area. CATT.com slash 5G for you for details. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Sugi. Yes. I don't want to say anything that's going to denigrate our previous guests, who are all very well-known writers, but we have somebody who's like legit famous on the show today. But, but wait, I'm on the show with you every week and you are famous. No, 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 no. I'm talking Golden Globes famous. Oh, uh, you, look, mean, there, you mean actually there's a difference. famous. Yes, there's a difference between writer famous and actor famous. I think we all know that. But this guest, who we're going to keep teasing, you'll find out in a minute who it is, um, is also going to help us talk about a, a very serious issue, which is... Uh, this spate of new uh, anti-trans laws that are coming out across the United States. And in just the first three months of this year, we've seen uh, new laws proposed and passed in places from South Carolina to Arizona to your home state of Missouri. It's actually over 35 states that have passed laws that have affected the daily lives and basic rights of transgender Americans. It's an incredibly upsetting thing to see. Um, it feels like we're moving backwards in a, in a, in a way that we should not be. Um, but I do think it's something that it's, we should be talking about on this podcast and that everyone should be talking about. And that's why we're looking forward to our discussion with this episode's guest. Alexandra Billings is an award-winning actor and longtime LGBTQ and HIV slash AIDS activist. As a performer, she's played the role of Madame Morrible in Wicked, starred in Broadway's 2018 production of the play, The Nap, and has been on TV in Transparent, The Connors, and How to Get Away with Murder, among others. She's here to talk to us today about her new memoir, which is called This Time for Me, and it came out earlier this month. She will also share with us her thoughts on how these new laws are affecting the trans community. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Right now, uh... 100, it's kind of, it's hard to count these up. We spent some time trying to figure this out. 150, we think, anti-trans bills have been proposed in 35 states 
across the country. Some of these bills have been stopped. Others have been signed into law, like the bill signed by Arizona Governor Doug Ducey prohibiting transgender girls from playing on girls' sports teams. Others are pending. Of course, American politicians have, been, have felt that anti-trans sentiment is, good, is a good political move before. Um, so does this new spate of legislation represent like a dangerous acceleration of anti-trans sentiment or does it just represent the status quo in America? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. Uh, yes to both. The, this, this has been true for generations. I'm 60 years old. I began my transition in 1980 and the, I've been having the same conversations with the same groups of people for decades, ever since that time. In fact, I was on a show a million years ago called the Phil Donahue show, if any of you remember that. Oh, I'm, I'm you. Yes, so we're bless same generation, heart. Alex. Thank so uh, God. I'm right there with you for Phil Donahue. Bless you. I feel so much better now. So uh, <laughs> on that show and on that show, uh, when I was with some other performers from the Baton in Chicago, a woman in the back stood up and asked us all which bathroom we used. So these, and they're the same people, the same political uh, affiliations. Uh, they've gotten more extreme as time has gone by because they have more permission. With we have more people in the government now, they give them permission. We not we also have the advent of social media, which now gives um, those kind of people uh, an international, global platform. So the danger is larger because the voice is bigger. So there has always been, ever since I can remember, and the generation before me. Uh, used to tell me the same thing, anti-trans sentiment. What we're talking about here is misogyny. We're talking about a country steeped in patriarchal ideology. Because when they talk about trans, you'll notice all of those trans bills are all about trans women. They're not about trans men. They're about trans women. That's very because interesting. We are, well, it, it, because we are terrified of the feminization of the American male. And we are considered men. Men with surgery, men in dresses, men with a disease, men with a disorder. And you can be a woman and wear pants, that's great. But you cannot be a man and wear a dress. That's against the law. And they actually now are making those laws. I have been arrested before in the 1980s for walking across the street. There were laws on the book, they were called indecency laws. And they don't seem so archaic anymore. Uh, but I was arrested simply because I wasn't wearing two articles of what they deemed male clothing underneath my kind of fabulous Norma Kamali, I have to say. And, <laughs> and when I was arrested, the policeman told me, I said, why are you arresting me? And at the time I was a sex worker. So at the time I thought, I told him, I said, I'm walking. I'm not working. I'm just walking. I'm going to the 7-Eleven. And he said, no, no, you have to have two articles of male clothing on at all times. And I thought, I don't know what you, you mean, like tube socks? What are you talking about? <laughs> it's insane. So we have a very, well, I want to be really clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about very typical, common American misogyny. That's what transphobia is uh, founded in. That is a remarkable passage from the book, and we're going to read from it um, later on in the, in the show. I also just was amazed. I, I connect this kind of ideology with, to be honest, authoritarianism. And uh, I noticed that Putin... Uh, was decided to talk about you know his anti-trans stance and and worrying about being canceled for talking about uh, uh, trans issues um, in a, in a state speech you know so, so strange to me 
um, that uh, there's a, I think there's a connection between the American misogyny that you're talking about and what we're seeing in other countries that are that are moving rightward and using that as a as a rallying cry. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the only reason I don't say global misogyny, I believe that that's true, is because I don't live in those countries. I only mm -hmm. speak about America because I live here. But in my uh, I agree with you. Yes, it's it's misogyny, period. Absolutely. No question. And remember, back in the 1980s and 90s, when the AIDS plague, you know, this is my second viral plague and the first viral plague that happened that wiped out most every single one of my friends um that administration which was uh ronald reagan's administration took it took them four years to even say the word aids or hiv four years so we lost hundreds of thousands of people were dying at that time because the disease began in the gay male community and to be again when you're a gay male, you know, that's that's against the law. So at the time, it was killing all the right people. And so I'm I mean, I really appreciate the your precision with language here. And and I have kind of another another question about that, because thinking about these the new laws that are the laws that have been passed in recent years, you know, Idaho passed the first law related to transgender sports participation in 2020. So much of the discourse I see around this is also, as you as you note, misogynistic. Though that law was blocked in court, West Virginia passed a similar law and nine other states followed. And then most recently, um, Whitney mentioned Doug Ducey, and, and he has just proposed a similar ban. And, and I'm quoting him here. He says, every young Arizona athlete should have the opportunity to participate in extracurricular activities that give them a sense of belonging and allow them to grow and thrive, Ducey said. So I'm curious to hear you talk about the language here, because to, to me, it seems designed to dehumanize and to put trans athletes outside any human category. They're not included. Like when he says every young Arizona athlete, he's not including trans athletes. I've been playing girls sports for 45 years. I've been using women's public restrooms for 30 years. These people have been playing sports with us and going to the bathroom with us and having their teeth cleaned by us. And we're lawyers, we're doctors, we're their neighbors, we're their babysitters. I'm also a teacher. I've been teaching their children for four decades. There's, so this isn't new. What's new is we are louder. We're taking up more space. Trans people didn't appear in the 1980s because everyone was doing too much cocaine. Like there's an entire generation, <laughs> there's an entire generation that sort of feels like we just popped up, you know, like what's all this trans <laughs> stuff? We we have found we found an identity because we found a container to put ourselves in. Before we weren't called anything. And if you go back in history, you know, we're we're in Greek mythology, we're in all the history books. So the reason I tell you all of this is because what they're trying to do is eradicate us. They believe we are an idea. If you listen to people like Marjorie Greene, if you listen to her speak, she speaks, uh, she speaks as if we are an idea, literally a philosophy that has got to be stopped. And again, remember, we're mostly talking about trans women. Mostly we've got to be stopped. And if we just stopped it, if we just stopped behaving that way, because it's all behavior, then everything would go back to what they claim and what feels normal. So the idea that, that, that here's the thing we have to remember. 
if in fact every single trans woman again we're talking about trans women every single trans woman were bigger faster stronger and more agile than every single cis woman on the planet earth that's a pretty large statement to make without backing it up by statistics we don't have those we have zero statistics about hormone level chromosomal level testosterone blockers we have zero statistics about any of that and i can tell you something from my own marriage i met this human being in 1976 we've been together now for 46 years she is stronger than i am she can lift things faster than I can. I can outrun her, thank goodness. But that's the only thing. And she is a cisgender, meaning female, born female, identifies as mostly as a female. And I am trans. So we are literally a couple that breaks every single one of their rules. So in short, what's happening is they're trying to say to the world, these trans women, are just an idea. And if we stop them from participating in anything that involves public, visual, or oral or emotional truth, we will stop them altogether. And that's what they believe. And that's what they're succeeding in doing. That's the scary part. Yeah, that, that yes and yes you said at the beginning, is it, is it the same or worse? Um, you know, it's very interesting, I, you know, I have friends whose kids are trans and who go to school and, and are, you know, changing the way that they dress and, and are, and like are certainly being accepted more than they would have been when I was in school. Um, and yet, um, you know, there is also, I think that it's this, there is a, there's a push because of that visibility, maybe, as you say, from the right to sort of put that all back behind closed doors and not be seen. Um, we're seeing those in the in the legislative emphasis on pro prohibiting gender affirming health care for trans youth. Um, bills to this on this topic have been reduced in Congress and a number of state legislatures. In your book, and this is the criminalizing part, right, that we're talking about. In your book, you mentioned that you actually served jail time due to a law discriminating against transgender people. Um, I wonder. We're going to read a little part of that book and then and then talk about it. Please have your pick and resume ready. I had those. Finally, I had those. My picture had been taken by a local photographer, and as I had barely any money, the black and white photo was not exactly professional. My head was tilted. I wore a black turtleneck sweater, and my hair was frizzy and matted. I didn't quite understand the idea of self. I couldn't really show me because I was still trying to find me. I looked like an ad for a glamour shot from Sears. We all sat, and one by one we went in. Further down the hallway, I saw a group of them. I looked at them with great envy. I wanted to be in that group over there. I wanted to be in the group that was chatting and giggling and talking about where they were going after the audition. They dressed like actresses. They looked like actresses and they were surrounded by other actresses. And as if someone had flipped a switch, three of them saw me way down the hallway. They pointed, whispered to a fourth actress and they all laughed. They threw their heads back and they laughed. As they stared, their laughter sliced through the middle of me, ringing down the tiles of the hall. The previous year, I had spent time in jail. I had been walking down the street on my way to get a pack of cigarettes. I was dressed in a white sundress with bright yellow wedgies and a small brown bag. 
I was walking. I wanted cigarettes and it was a hot, hot day. As I made my way across the street, a police car pulled up beside me. A large man got out, took me by the hands and pinned me up against the car. I knew I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I assumed this was some sort of gay fashion police. You know, he spat very close in my ear as his hot, awful breath blew onto my neck. You can't walk around this way unless you have two articles of male clothing on. He began to handcuff me, closing these round steel things to my wrists tightly. Two articles of male clothing, I repeated. What? You mean like tube socks? I spent the night sleeping on a cot that smelled like fish and dried semen. They handed me a donut that crackled when I held it in my hand and a cup of coffee so thick I could have used it to plant a rosebush. I slept next to a man of about 60 who threw up on himself every so often. So when the girls pointed at me, I twitched. I wasn't wearing my two articles of male clothing. Maybe they were, for some, were from some undercover transgender arresting office and were masquerading as actors in order to trap me. I had spent five or six nights in jail over the past few years, and I really wanted this part, so I didn't have time for bail or overnight stays. Real actresses didn't get thrown in jail or need to worry about their underwear. A girl with flaming red hair grabbed me by the hand. What? I screamed, thinking it was a soft-handed cop. Let's go over here. Her voice was easy. Her eyes were a deep green, and she reminded me of Barbara Streisand in What's Up, Doc? I'm Jamie. Alex. Those girls are assholes. Jamie kept me close to her that day. She really didn't understand how she had saved me. I had been about to leave, but because of her, I didn't, and I was cast. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll come right back for the rest of our discussion. Wait, do you remember when we started the show five years ago? I think that like one of the first things that I felt really awkward about was... I mean, who likes to listen to themselves talk? And I was like, how is my voice going to sound on air? Like, oh, God. And I th there was that dreaded first take tape that we did. Yeah. Long since deleted. We buried in the backyard. Long since deleted. And I think, you know, with our background as as writers, like the, the importance of the written word is really obvious. But I think I started to really pay attention more to like how I was talking. And, you know, you gave me some great tips. But when it came to getting our voices kind of uh, show ready... I really wish I had had a real expert like the people at Such a Voice. Yeah, and I am no expert on, you know, how to do anything, uh, you know, in terms of the, the way your voice sounds on, on, on a recording for a podcast. Fortunately, you know, Such a Voice has people who are experts within that industry um, and can give you lessons on how to do all kinds of different voices, how to do audiobooks, how to do commercials, how to do animation. Um, I mean, it's just that there's so many options within that world, things that you can learn how to do at your house, sitting in your office, doing what I'm doing right now. Um, but you'll be a real voice, a real world voice actor, and you can figure out how the industry works. Yeah. And, you know, um, I did um, some lessons with such a voice. And it was so fun. It was so fun. I think that... Well, we had the we, same guy. Can we say his, his name? name? Was it was Tim, Tim Powers. Powers. He was awesome. It. He was awesome. He was so fun. And like, also, it just was really clear. Um, like, it's very clear, like, what I should do to be better at this. And um, and he had such a range of experience. It was kind of incredible to listen to all of the stuff that he had done kind of in this field. And he was just really fun. 
The most interesting thing that he said that I had never thought of was that, you know, he had me read a script the first time and then think about an emotional incident that happened right before it that was extremely personal to me. And he was saying, like, reading the words is not, you need to not pay attention to the words. You need to pay attention to the emotion behind the words. And like you could read the phone book, but with emotion, and that will connect with readers. And I just thought that was a fascinating insight. And he taught me how to do it. Yeah, I felt like at the end of it, um, I was better. I was just better at it and um, was going to have things that I could remember so that I wouldn't like sometimes I learn something and it kind of like falls out of my brain because the pandemic has been rough and my mind is a sieve. But he like gave it to me in these kind of like clear steps and, and just like clear things to remember and hold on to so that the next time I am doing this, I can keep that with me. And we both teach writers and we want you. We know I always tell advise writers who are applying to MFA programs Make sure that the people who are teaching you are publishing, you know, and Tim is a working voice actor who, you know, has been working for Disney, which has worked for Netflix. The people who are at this company really know what they're talking about. They're involved in the industry. And I think that that is crucial. So if you've been looking for a way to get into the voiceover industry, visit suchavoice.com FNF and receive a complimentary copy of Such a Voice's must knows a voiceover. And if you do this, you get access to advice from professional voiceover artists in the industry to help you out. And again, these are people who are out there doing it every day, the audiobooks, narration, animation, um, working actors. And um, you just go to suchavoice.com slash FNF today, and you can see if a career in voiceover is right for you. And again, I just want to emphasize, this was super fun. Um, so you mentioned... In your book, um, and thank you so much for reading for for that passage, which I think was so you spoke about it a little bit earlier, and it's so it's so striking. And you mention um, that the word transgender didn't even really exist when you were growing up. And we've been talking a lot about language and what language is applied to all of this. Do you feel that lack of language had an effect on your understanding of yourself and your place in the world? Oh, absolutely. That's why it's so important that we raise trans kids, non-binary kids, and gender fluid kids with a sense of honor and celebration. You know, I wrote, I wrote a tweet a couple of days ago, and I said just that very thing, that LGBT youth should be um, honored and celebrated. And one of the, um, who's, this person who's an ally actually wrote back and said, well, that's a little strong. I, you know, I think we want to watch our language because we want everybody treated the same. And I said, honey, it's not my problem that you're not celebrating and honoring your own life. That has nothing to do with me. If, if you want to live your life in a mundane, easy way that has absolutely nothing to do with celebration of who you are and what you've accomplished, you do that over in the corner. I intend to celebrate these <laughs> children. And, and the thing is, when I was in school, I was just talking about this the other day. When I was in school, I'm of an age, again, I'm 60 years old. So I am of an age when we got report cards, little white pieces of paper with letter grades on them. And the teacher would also put little comments. I was reading this article not too long ago and uh, uh, written by a woman who's uh, from my generation. And they were talking about the uh, old report card. And they said, if you were the kind of student that got comments like talks too much, talks too loudly, interrupts, disrupts the classroom. Most statistically, most of those people grew up to be orators, professional orators. And one of the things, one of my 500 careers is as a lecturer, that's what I do. So had, 
had I had a teacher who would have stood up in front of the class when I had a question and I had millions, I still do, and said, Alex, that's a great question. Good for you. Good thinking. That's really smart. Had one teacher, no teacher ever said that to me in my entire school career, had one teacher said that to me, my life would have been different. So if you don't bring in affirmation in the classroom, and as a teacher of over 40 years, that's the foundation of my teaching. If you don't bring affirmation into the classroom for every single student and teach the individual student in front of you, you're not a teacher. That's why we need to bring, that's why they're stopping this law because they don't want us to be celebrated. They don't want us to be honored. They don't want our community to be noticed, heard, or seen. I think you're referencing the, is the, are you referencing the don't say gay bills, quote unquote? In yeah, Florida, you know, that... and I'm not real crazy about that title either. Um, but yes, the HB bill, yes. And, and that, that is a very specific bill which kills me also, because as a teacher, I have never taught a class on how to be transgender. I wouldn't even know how to be, I don't even know how to do it. How could I teach other people how to do it? It's not like juggling. It's not a thing that you can teach. It's bizarre. It's very strange. But this whole idea of indoctrination also is also very old. This whole idea that LGBTQ people are pedophiles is very old. This is very archaic ideology that's been carried with this generation, you know, the 50s generation, the 60s generation, you know, and so it's this sort of old hat, but that's where that comes from. And that bill is about silence. It's not about not saying a word. It's not about a specific word. It's about taking an entire community of people and removing any kind of affirmation as to who they are, annihilating it. We have to be really clear about what that thing does. It's also outlawing truth. I mean, that's, that's, you know, once you start outlawing truth, you're, you're on a, you're on a bad path. Um, In 19, in in the mid nineties, you were diagnosed with AIDS. Um, The passage passages in the book about your reaction to the diagnosis and your physical reaction to the disease were quite powerful. I wonder if you could talk about that period in your life and how it affected your activism. Well, you know, it's, it's, it used to be really hard to, to explain this to people because it's been so long. And nowadays the disease is, you know, mostly manageable. And now I can use words like trauma and I can use words like trigger. And because all of us globally have survived this quarantine and this new viral plague, and we're still continuing to combat again, far right-wing conservative extremism, it makes more sense now. It's fascinating to me because what I can tell you is those words, you know, when you hear things like mask and everybody has a visceral reaction to it, everybody, no matter how you feel about it, everybody goes, oh, mask, that means something. Three years ago, mask, you would have said mask to somebody and they would have thought about, you know, what, Halloween, right? You can say quarantine to people now and people, most everyone on the planet will have a visceral reaction. That's what happened when the doctor walked in and said, you have AIDS because everyone was dying, everyone. There was nothing to be done. People were driving to Mexico, literally across the border to Mexico to get this brand new drug called AZT 
that was being sold in like out of the way pharmacies that you had to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for, for like 10 pills that maybe might save your life, maybe. So if you think about what we've all been through now, think about the words and how they reverberate in the center of your soul. That's what happened to myself and my spouse as we stood in that doctor's office. I feel like the bills that we discussed earlier are in part trying to legislate that gender can only be performed in one specific way. And, and you've had, you talked about your, your millions of careers and you've had such an illustrious career in performance arts and you speak to how that love for performing began with singing for your mother as a child in, in this time for me. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your life as an actor has informed how you think about gender and identity in more complicated and ultimately, I think, more inclusive ways. What a great question. I've never been asked that question before. Um, we try. I, yeah, it's really good, I gotta <laughs> say. You write that down. Uh, um, I, I, think, I think it's the reverse. I think my, my gender identity informed my art because I knew I was trans, even without knowing the word, before I understood what art was or even how to do it or even that it existed. I was in creation of my own gender identity in a way that wasn't performative. So, and I went through stages, I have to admit. My gender identity then did become performative and so my art became very performative, which is why I think I was Shantae, you know, at the baton when I was a, a you know, a drag queen and lip syncing, I think it, I was very into the performance of who I was all, all the time, all the time. You know, I never sort of said, you know, let's go somewhere. I would always say, let's pass the pancake. Everything was like huge, <laughs> right? Everything was very large. Not that everything isn't large now, but there was also a sense of bravado and falseness about my life, I think. And as I got older and got sober and settled into my marriage, my spouse is the greatest person on the planet, really. I really, that's the one I have to say. I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. It's the smartest thing I ever did, really, is marry that human being. Because she has given me breath and she has ignited my spirit. And she's also given me a sense of responsibility. Responsibility, not just to who I am, but to how I can be of service to others. And the more I thought about that, the less performative my art became. And weirdly, this is just popping into my head as I'm saying it, the, the more my teaching began to get more specific. You know, when I first started teaching, everything was fabulous. Everything, everybody did, because I was so scared. I was so, I mean, I'm, it's still scary, but it was really frightening. Everything was great. Like the students will go, how is that? And I'm like, great, please like me. <laughs> you know, I was so terrified. And now I can admonish my students without belittling them because they know they're in a space where they can create and experiment with everything. So I think it worked in reverse. What a great question. Um, might be, well, that might be the nicest thing I've ever heard said about a spouse on this show. <laughs> oh, really? 
that was very that was that was very love no i just think it was extremely lovely that was very nice oh okay good well she's i mean it i'm not kidding she's the greatest i really i i married up we want to talk to you about your teaching but before that i want to just ask like because this book seems to be coming out at a really important time for younger people from any community who are who are listening to Dave Ducey be an idiot um, and and to read a life, you know, that has dealt with these issues in real terms and, and to see a, a, the arc of your life as portrayed in a book, which is something a books are good at doing. But I wonder this when you conceived this, I don't know how long ago it was you decided to write the book and what were your main goals when you set off on that journey? Um, I actually started writing my memoirs when I was about in, when I was in my 30s because I really thought I was something else, I have to say. And I thought this is a great idea. People are gonna love it. And I hand wrote it like on ta like you know Charlton Heston like on tablets I hand wrote <laughs> and it was just terrible it was just a mess um and then I started to I had director friends of mine go you you have an interesting you know in my 30s and 40s you have an interesting life you should write a show so I did I wrote a couple of solo shows in fact one was a musical in which Chris Ann wrote lyrics for the music and I wrote the original music so we our lives sort of have done this artistically as well and so I think I've been writing this for a couple of decades, but it wasn't until the quarantine because there was nothing else to do, really. Well, what else, what are we gonna do? And my mentor and friend and who I um, lovingly call my work wife, Joanne Gordon, she said, well, I'll help you with it. Cause Christiane was the one who said, cause I was very depressed, very sad and triggered because you know, it's my, like I said, my second viral pandemic. And she said, why don't you write your book? And I went, oh, don't be ridiculous. And she said, no, 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 no. What else are you doing? Sit down, just start writing. And Joanne was the one who said, you do this all the time. You do it on Instagram and on Facebook, you write little posts and things, just put them all together and send them to me and I'll put them in a book. And that's exactly what happened. So it took us about a year, I think, together to write it. You chose to end this time for me with a letter to your past, present, and future acting students at USC, which was like this tender and lovely thing. And how important was it for you to end the memoir, which details so many real and traumatic moments of anti-trans violence with a message of hope for younger generations? Well, uh, I'm so glad you asked me that because Whitney's question, I didn't really answer the last part of it, which was why why did I write the book and, and, and you know, what, what, what was the reason behind it? When I first started to write it, I wanted to, I wanted to write, I really think I'm something else, I have to say. I wanted to write like a queer history book of a certain generation because I've been around before Stonewall. I was seven years old when Stonewall happened. I remember it happening, the reverberations happening in, in my house. So I wanted to write a chronological sort of map of the trans experience pre-Stonewall and then up to me going, uh, being on Broadway. And somewhere in the middle of this bizarre journey I was writing about, I got tired of trying to uh, write things down with, that had to do with dates and proof. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want, I just got bored with myself 
and and in the middle of the book as i as the character in the book i'm i know i sound psychotic but as the character in the book me began to find out what mattered most which was how can i be of service i began to go to say to myself oh there are enough history books we have enough history books we know what happened alex you don't need it to you're not a historian you're a teacher and who because the whole book is filled with teachers who is your greatest teacher who has been the greatest teacher throughout your life and that has been my students so the letter is a thank you it's not a dedication it's a thank you it is a specific idea of how i am able to navigate my life seen through the lens of a grateful student that's what that is and that's why so i think um we talked about your book but we can't let you go without talking about transparent as well um so in Transparent, you, you played the role of Davina, and we're focusing on your book and current politics in this interview, but that show was just a huge sensation. And it was, it was critically acclaimed and also at moments controversial, like allegations about Jeffrey Tambor's conduct on set. And I wonder now with the benefit of time to reflect, if you can talk a little bit about the legacy of that show for the trans community. I am very proud to have been associated with Transparent and I don't know that ever in my career will I have the opportunity to be around that kind of artistic freedom and that kind of monumental change. I hope that's true, but that was the first time it ever happened to me. And remember, this didn't occur until I was in my 50s. It wasn't like I was a 20-year-old actress right out of college and I got this amazing gig. This is the third act of my life and this thing happened. I, was, I found myself at the Golden Globe Awards. It was ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is insane. Insane. It's still a, a blur to me. I have to tell you, you know, the show was never about the trans community. We have to be really clear about that. The show was about the Feffermans. It wasn't about the trans experience. It veered off that way because I got loud and Joey Soloway got loud and Trace Lizette got loud. And Our Lady J got loud. The trans people, we all kind of went, okay, we're starting to get noticed and we're starting to get recognized as a transgender show. We need more Mora. We need more community. We need more. But I think the great gift for me in that show is, of course, the, the, the legacy of the, of the fact of it. But the real legacy for me is the lasting relationships. Catherine Hahn and Amy Landecker and Bradley Whitford and Trace Lizette and Our Lady J and Joey and Faith and the great, great, radiant Judith Light have become part of who I am. And I never would have met them without that show. I never would have met them. My life the trajectory of my life and my life's 
philosophies are different because of those people. So I think that this is gonna sound strange, but I think the legacy of that show is in fact the relationships it created because now we are all able to go out. Those people never met a, a trans person before. I mean, Judith did, but many of those people had never met a trans person before. And now we're family. So they all go out into the artistic world. Bradley Whitford is one of the most staunch, radical trans allies I have in my life, literally in my life. They are now able to go out into the professional artistic world and talk about this on a global stage and not just talk about it. They love me, they know me, they're part of our lives. So they're able to talk about it from a place of truth and great freedom. And that I think is the lasting legacy of Transparent. Is well, isn't Joey Soloway uh, like the editor at large for Topple Books that published the mem their memoir? I mean, so there's that's a correct. connection through the book as well. That's exactly right? right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, yes, yes. I the book wouldn't have happened without Joey Soloway. It would simply wouldn't have happened. So you know, every that whole transparent was a, a whole complete thought in my life, and that those tentacles expand. It's bigger. It's not just a show that happened and was iconic and well-received and beautifully written and well-acted and then is over. It's a show that uh, has an enormous amount of chaos and mess and joy in it and has created this amazing net of human beings that are still talking and still on our side. That's everything. Well, Alexandra, thanks for including us in your net of uh, and talking to our listeners uh, about You're your, very welcome. your book. We encourage our listeners to go out and pick up a copy of Alexandra Billings' new memoir, This Time for Me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This show is produced by Ann Kinnigendorf with help from students from University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the University of Minnesota. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our own YouTube channel. And our website, which is full of, which is with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Happy reading.